Welcome to the Property Funder podcast and today we have got Daniel with us. Daniel, what is your full name? What's your business? And please describe what your business does. Uh, my full name is Dan Daggers and uh, I am the founder of DDRE Global as well as another business called ADVSR.ai and essentially DDRE Global is a new and contemporary real estate business, a bit like a brokerage. Um, that you'll find overseas and then ADVSR is a technological platform connecting brokers all over the world. So how sorry can you can you repeat that last business because um people might want to look, look that up so how, how do you how do you uh what, what are the initials of it? ADV is ADVSR.ai. AI. Okay. Um, ADVSR is abbreviation of two words advisor Mm-hmm. and advertiser because we're all advertisers i think everyone's sort of come finally got there that social media is about building brand and advertising what you do um and so this platform enables other professionals to find other professionals in the industry and then leverage their contacts by democratizing content and uh enabling people to market our clients homes all over the world um, and vice um, versa and what was the what was the inspiration for um so if, if I can call it advisor.ai or advsr.ai yeah. what what was what was the what what motivated you to to set that up because I I I now now I think about it having seen on your socials I do recall you you know you you promoting that a few times um very simply we don't know everybody yeah so regardless of how successful agents might be or their influence we don't know everyone and so if we're looking to deliver the best service for our clients, we need to work with other professionals around the world that have access to customers that we would like to have access to. And by doing so, um, you create a sort of network effect, which enables you far greater um, penetration into markets where you know your clients are, yeah, your buyers are. So, for instance, in the UK, we're selling real estate between five and 100, 200 million pounds. Most of our buyers are foreigners coming to the UK. Um, for us to get hold of those buyers before they come to the UK, we want to have an ambassador basis, a group of people that do what we do in a similar way, just all over the world. And we give them content of our clients' properties and we let them post about it and push them onto their advisor page, generate leads and then refer them to us. Um, it sort of gives people an opportunity to be part of a bigger business um, and go global at a small cost without uh, without having to be part of a franchise. Is is that in some ways come about with, from scratching your own itch? Because I, I know you, you know, we'll obviously talk about your your journey to where you are now, but you are part of a larger, yeah. far more networked, um, you know, high end uh, residential agency business where you would have had that um, that that pool of clients globally. So to then go to being an independent uh, an independent brokerage as you've now established to be able to access those clients from all around the world outside of your own networks, it it, it clearly gives you that that extra leverage um, in doing so. But I guess the, the this the, the side benefit of that is that you're able to then build up a 
a, a much larger business where other advisors completely independently of yourself are able to to interact and, and and network together effectively. Yeah, exactly right. So for instance, I'm appointed to sell a home currently or a couple of homes, but one in particular for for over a hundred million pounds. And uh, and what we've done, we've looked at the data, analyzed what agents around the world have sold homes uh, over a hundred million dollars in the past four years. We know that those people have access to people that have at least a hundred million dollars to spend. They've either sold a property, so have a hundred million dollars in their back pocket, or they've acquired a property, which means they're probably worth a lot more than a hundred million dollars. And if we then use those people as ambassadors to deliver our clients' properties to those people, then we get our clients' properties to a market that isn't necessarily in the UK, but maybe at some point. And if we're enabled to do that through technology, the cost of it is minuscule, but the impact of it is massive. Um, and that's why we built ADVSR. And how, um, I mean, can you talk through the the process of, of actually, you know, because I think a lot of, I think some people don't quite realise that you, that there's no, there's not a directory of, of high net worth individuals. Can you talk through maybe the process of how you approach a high net worth individual as to and why ADVSR.ai is, 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 is so essential? Look, access to the ultra high net worth is very difficult. You need to have a proven track record. And generally, someone like me, I get referred to other people and say, look, Daniel's great what he does. We trust him implicitly. He can plug into the ecosystem very easily and be a good representation for you and give you the right advice. That's one thing. But I don't know everyone. And if I don't know everybody, I have to work in a in a way where I'm um, collaborating with other ultra high net worth advisors. Yeah, because to penetrate the ecosystem of the ultra high net worth is very difficult to do unless you have a significant brand. Um, and so the only way to those people is via a trusted source. Now, that trusted source in many instances is an agent that they have done business with and bought their last home through that has access to that ultra high net worth. So instead of me trying to do my very best to reach the principal, I'm now sort of embracing the ultra high net worth community of ecosystem advisors, and then getting them to put up properties in front of their clients. It is the safest and most trusted way to deliver information to any community is via the person that the um, the person that they trust, respect, and like most. Yeah, I, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, it's not as simple as going on LinkedIn or going on, you know. No social media you know that on people's various socials and going hey how about you know i've got this opportunity come and have a look at it you have essentially you you're leveraging essentially gatekeepers in multiple markets multiple domains and yeah, enable exactly. and 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 enable and because that's ultimately access to these ultra high net worth individuals is ultimately controlled by a number of a, a number of gatekeepers and kind of understandably you you expect that once you get into certain certain territories yeah, you know like middle east and royal families being a you know obviously a, a very good example of that no, tech entrepreneurs you know um they might be building what you'll find now is that everyone realizes social media gives you access to the customer base and in many instances that has to be delivered by the ceo who becomes phenomenally successful um and whilst they have a, a digital footprint and social media handles you can't dm them very easily and say hey you're looking to buy a property but what we can do is we can find out who acts for these people to get the information to the ultra high net worth community and that's what we're doing 
Yeah, it's quite interesting. I, I had um, I had a chap called Justin Lunny on the podcast. I think we we released the the episode uh, last week or the week before last. And um, Justin has a, has has built a, a company called Everati, and Everati effectively are taking classic car chassis and then they're putting EV motors inside them. And he's 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 already got a very long waiting list of clients for these for these cars, obviously beautiful cars, and a lot of the a lot of the clients are these ultra high net worth individuals and many of them are tech entrepreneurs so it kind of leads me to think that actually is is there a you know your you know your network you know the adbsr.ai network isn't doesn't necessarily just have to be estate agents it can also be people who who deal with super yachts or in someone like justin in, in in that kind of situation yeah correct so at the moment it's 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 one um sort of one route to market which is the agency role yeah but it could be financial advisors lawyers accountants interior designers anybody could be on that platform um what it does for products is that it white labels the offering so we're selling a property here it's under ddre global and um it's got our branding all over it and so on and so on but once we plug it into adbsr and then essentially um deliver it to other agents around the world, it takes the information, it white labels it into everyone else's branding so that they can hold the link down and send it to their clients. Um, And then when you're a user of it and you do that too, what happens is you get a dashboard, you can see which advisors around the world are actively promoting that property, um, which isn't Googleable. And so now you get global awareness for no cost, practically no cost. And and presumably a lot of these a lot of the properties that you market because of the a because of the people who are who are the owners of the properties um and and secondly secondly because of the nature of them you're it's not like you you're shoving them on right move and they're and and they're well known about it. They're, they're kind of they're this it's kind of like a gray market am i right am i right yeah, in assuming that that this they're not re, they're not really officially on on the market and openly marketed yeah so so every market is starting to realize that there are three markets when you're selling product one um let's just say open air that means that the properties are visible and googleable and are on all the marketplaces okay so in the uk that would be right move and zoopla and on the market and so on and so on so that's actively open you then have a tier beneath it which is social channels and you could reduce content put it on social media not disclose the actual address and now you get awareness without google footprint of that property being available okay um, and then you have the next phase, which is totally off market, and that's where it's behind a secure password. I think that the the third phase, the bottom one run on the ladder, is very tricky to to maintain and to police because nowadays with technology, it's very easy to copy content. Um, and so that's the three phases. But I suspect that that may also change. Mm. And. If we just rewind back to your early years, I mean, I I was aware of you being an estate agent. I think back in in Maida Vale, probably going back twenty really? years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think um, was amazing. it was it Vickers? Did you work for yeah, Vickers? Yeah, that's right. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, can yeah. we can we um so you know you're so you're and you obviously got quite a memorable name as well. So uh, yes. I think I think you were 
you refer to as Danny Daggers, but I think you're now now you're now you're a, you're a grown up. You know, you're you're going by a, a, more, a more grown up name. And um, what is uh, what was the sort of the, the origin story? How did you how did you end up find yourself in the world of you know high end estate agency? Wow, it wasn't high end estate agency when I started. I mean, um, I, I was I wasn't a very good student at school. I don't really learn the same way other people do. I think I'm dyslexic. And I didn't qualify to go to university, even though all my friends were going and I thought it would be fun. Um, and I got to a point where I was trying to make it as a professional footballer. I wasn't good enough. And I went to study surveying, which I found remarkably boring. And, um, and I jacked it in after breaking my collarbone, playing football with some mates. Lost my footballing contract or the opportunity of one and lost sort of the desire to study and wanted to earn money. So during my GMBQ in business that I did at school, I had to do a two week work experience, which I did at Vickers and Company, which is a small independent agency in Maida Vale. And um, I did that for two weeks, licked a lot of stamps, um, printed out loads of details for properties and then left after two weeks. I think I got £100 from the boss at the time, Stephen. And then six or seven or nine months later, after breaking my collarbone and sort of jacking and studying, they sort of approached me and said, hey, what's Daniel doing now? Because they bumped into my father. I was 17 and a bit, nearly 18. And my dad said, look, he's looking for a job. So I had a phone interview and they hired me on, I think it was £7,000 a year. Wow. <laughs> um, and so how and how long did you stay at Vickers for? I was there for 10 years. Wow. So okay. 17 to 27. I started off selling studio flats for, I think my first transaction was £117,000. What what would that what would that uh, studio flat be worth now? Do you think about three hundred thousand? Yeah, just goes just goes to show. And then so and and you mentioned the football. Um, so whose whose books were you on? Um, and, I was and playing what? at the time. For, I was playing for a team called Hayes Town. Okay. A big football club. Jason Roberts was in the team who went and became very successful. Blackburn, I think he was. He was a very good guy. Very powerful um and look in my heart of hearts i knew i wasn't going to be good enough um but doesn't mean that you can't try no Do, uh, we've had now a, a couple of people who have uh, on the podcast here have actually been effectively um schoolboy apprentice footballers um yeah. and so it's an interesting theme here what what do you think that it taught you being, you know, be effectively being in that sort of semi-pro setup as a as a youth player. What what did you get from it that that maybe you can that you you bring into your career and your working life now? Sport is unbelievably important for business people. Any kind of sport, it teaches you discipline. It teaches you that that effort is required to succeed at anything. It can also help you uh, understand. Uh, people more because if you're in a team environment you understand people more what their strengths are what their weaknesses are for instance if I had a very very pacey winger beside me I would put the ball into the channel for them to run onto because I know that's what they're going to prefer and then you start adopting these techniques into business you'll, you'll find that you'll succeed far quicker so football without a shadow of a doubt has enabled me to sort of press on with my working life yeah and um so in terms of and now as a business owner, you know, do you think you know where did you have any did you have a leadership role in any of the teams that you're playing in? Did has has football helped you as a leader, or is that something you've developed over time in, in no, other I, ways? I've I've always felt like a little bit of a black sheep, 
I've never really fitted in ever. And so my attitude for football was when I stepped on the pitch, I'm going to be the best player. I am the best player because it gave me confidence to go and deliver. Because if people aren't going to say that about me, I need to say it to myself and then I need to perform. And the only way I'm going to perform particularly well is if I believe I can perform exceptionally well. And so a lot of my teammates that didn't have the same mentality, um, they would find that very difficult. And I, and I get that now. It's probably why sometimes I had a very strange relationship with people where off the pitch, it was loving and caring and well, I had a great relationship with, with the other players and management. On the pitch, I was a different person and I sort of put myself in this sort of very assertive position. I wanted to go and win. It didn't mean that tackling was my was my strength, but it meant that I, I had like insane desire to be successful on the pitch. And sometimes people see that in, in different ways. Sometimes people see it as arrogance rather than confidence. And that's that's something that I've sort of had to deal with for most of my life. Um, it's funny because I, I think actually I see a lot of parallels between uh, between yourself and myself in 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 terms of character. You know that um, that sort of black sheep misfit um, thing. I, I think it's it, it's actually quite a common trait in in entrepreneurs. Um, I, I mean, interestingly though, you know, I, I guess before you before you set up DDRE you're a, a, a large a, a large agency i mean how uh, um if we're if we're okay to name it, it's night uh, night frank uh, and obviously yeah. a, a great a great proving ground a great opportunity for you to build your network and 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 carry out and represent clients on some fantastic sales um i know people at, at night frank and i have a pretty good sense of the culture there um would you say that there was an element of black sheep about you while you were at Night Frank? Did you feel a little bit, uh, would you have said you felt a little bit out of place from culturally there as well? Or was that was that more more because you were wanting to, wanting to be a, a, an, you're probably more suited to being an entrepreneur rather yeah. than necessarily that not fitting in with the culture? So I would look at it a slightly different way. I would say that um, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was when I was a kid. Yeah. And so... Um, when you fail a lot when you're a kid, when you don't go to, when, when you're not very good at school and you don't spell very well and you struggle to read and you're not very good at dating girls or chatting girls up because you lack confidence and, you know, all these sort of things, you don't believe that you're capable to do a lot of things, but you do challenge things, right? You don't take things for granted because you find it difficult. So you try and find other solutions. And I think that sometimes can sort of start the ball rolling and you can, develop this sort of very entrepreneurial spirit where you try to solve problems that other people don't see because culturally they do what they're told to do in the environment they choose to work in. I am a person that is always looking for opportunity, always. Um, and so when you start doing that in, in sort of structured environments, um, and that's everywhere, that's in football teams, in my in past jobs, even today, when you start doing that, it can be difficult for other people to understand, appreciate, manage, all that sort of stuff. And so, yes, I think that if you're an entrepreneur or you have entrepreneurial traits, working in a corporate environment is difficult because you're a little bit like a square peg or I should say a round peg in a square hole. Yeah. I mean, you you picked up uh, or you moved into on you moved into the world of entrepreneurship i mean i suppose 
when you're working when the role you roles you've had historically they're kind of you are like a mini entrepreneur in the, the various businesses that you sit within but you you moved into the world of entre- entrepreneurship and, and effectively being your own boss I mean how, how how many years ago did you set up DDRE? Three and a half years ago but I've always felt that I was running my own business which is me. Yeah and I guess as I guess as a consequence of that it's like it really it it was I would say that's relatively relatively late to be doing yeah. so in the context of of where you are in your career yeah. but do you feel that did you feel that actually that you needed to do that it, because with if you hadn't if you hadn't been at night Frank you maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to build your network and 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 get um, get the exposure that you you've, you've otherwise had the benefit of super thankful for my time there and my time at Vickers um I learn I learn in the environments I tend to choose to put myself in, right? Unless people are putting me in environments to learn from, like podcasting. Never done it before, tried it out, enjoyed it, liked it, learned things about it. And I think being in environments, it's your choice to understand them or choose to learn from them and then and then elaborate and see where else it can take you. Um, I I think that probably deep down entrepreneurs are people that are looking for solutions and don't necessarily do it in the formatted way and so you might be an entrepreneur when you're 17 and but you might not step into those shoes of being an entrepreneur you know you might treat yourself as one and do things within a sort of secure environment but you might not decide to step out of that that sort of box environment into your own environment and then truly execute like an entrepreneur Um, there's an element of bravery that's required sometimes money to feel feel comfortable about things but now is probably the best time ever to build your own business if you're an entrepreneur when, how did yeah sorry when did you know it was time to to set up ddre when you're unbelievably frustrated yeah um and i guess as a, i guess as a consequence of that you know it is it it's effectively i'm i'm sort of just guessing now and obviously you can you can correct me on it but is is it you've you've got to that point where you're so frustrated that you're you're willing to forego the the financial perks and all the the sort of the chains that the corporate machine binds you to or is there or is there more to it i think there's a place for everything and everyone um all the time yeah i I really do think that opportunity is in uh, is ahead of you um i think that when you scale a business from grassroots and you understand what the business is truly about and you see friction and friction needs to be tackled then that creates opportunity because if people aren't tackling that friction because they're very comfortable in the way it works currently it means that there's opportunity behind that friction and so um you know time tells at the end of the day and in in terms of your ability to see opportunity well in advance one one area i'd say you, you're exceptionally good at is social media and um, particularly on instagram you're um you know you, I, i've lost count of how many followers you, you have now but you're obviously a very well followed individual but you you were very active on 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 instagram and social media for you know the best part of a decade and even before you set up ddre what what inspired you to to see the the power of Instagram as a medium for for selling houses? Because I, I mean, I, I 
I, I, I've taken a little bit of what you do and tried to do it myself and, and I've certainly seen some benefits of it but you know you do it exceptionally well you know at a sort of world, world class level you know how did you spot the opportunity there well, you know what you know what sprang to mind when you thought right you know what I'm going to really really latch onto this platform and and and, and utilize it to the max okay so I don't think I've done much different I think my content has sort of stayed relatively similar since the beginning right um, the reason why people say you're world class at doing it and give me all these accolades, which is wonderful and thank you. And there's marketing um, um, exhibitions all over the world where people say, look, look at this professional. This is what this guy has built and he's got a great personal brand. Um, the truth is, I haven't really changed very much. The world has caught up with it. So now all of a sudden everyone goes, oh, well, he's really good at it because I've got followers and I've been doing it for a long time and people think it's super polished and wonderful and great, but insightful. And I think that the world caught up rather than I've changed or got better. Yeah, so that's that's one thing. How I found the sort of um, the why, why should I do it? I was in the US, I was traveling on business and I saw because the US is so entrepreneurial, which is the way they set up their businesses. I saw people take out their phones and take pictures of their outfits in beautiful homes. And then sort of the beautiful home took a back seat, but they were still marketing themselves in beautiful homes, which I thought was very interesting because it was going out to thousands of people. I thought to myself, well, they're marketing their service here and beautiful homes, and that's what I do. Why wouldn't we professionalize this? So I was one of the, one of probably the top 15 advisors across the planet to be asked to go to 432 Park Avenue, which is this which was this sort of global destination that uh, but Central Park and is incredible. And the first real true ultra high net worth is three quarters of the way through through the development, went up a side elevator, went into the 70th floor, whatever it was, I can't remember exactly the floor. I got out my phone, I went onto Facebook Live and I thought to myself, Let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. And I started to talk through. I'm in this beautiful apartment, or will be a beautiful apartment. It's currently a shell. Look at the size of the windows. Look at the view of Central Park. It's amazing. I've got that video. It's on my Instagram account. People can see it. It's my first expose, expose about how I was doing, what I was doing, where I was doing it. And I got thousands and thousands of views. And my friends at the time and some of my clients were all really engaged and it gave me an opportunity to speak to them and they would speak to their friends. And then obviously more business came of it. I thought to myself, this is the future of marketing. Um, and I ran back to the UK, not literally, and um, spoke to the head of marketing at Light Frank and said, look, this is what I want to do. This is the impact that I think I've had. Um, I can tell by the data. Um, we need to get up and running on this. And that's exactly what I did. And then there was loads of data points of what was successful, what isn't successful. Um, and, and then I was generating at one point four hundred million dollars worth of leads a month. Well, that's that's just exceptional, isn't it? And and I guess you can that was being converted at a reasonably high rate as well. Yes, I mean, I wasn't converting them because I was part of a bigger business. So I was referring the leads to everybody in mm. that business because that was what a good employee did. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I guess taking it one step further, um, now looking at the now looking at the impact of a of a show like um, you know selling uh, selling sunset and then I know there's million dollar listing yeah well um, have you have you been invited to participate participate in any shows like that and is it something you consider yeah I've been on 
I've been on million dollar listing. That was me and my entrepreneurial spirit sort of trying to test it out. You know, when you go like this and tap and dab and go, okay, yeah, I, I understand what that that's all about now. So I, I did a bit of million dollar listing, enjoyed it. It was quite fun. It was interesting. I knew that that was a wonderful way to build business. So getting on TV is important. Um, and also what happens is that a show like Million Dollar Listing, firstly, hats off to everyone that did the show because they had so much to, like it was it was the first time you saw real estate on, on big TV. Um, and I thought it was fascinating. And what I realized was that all this information that was pouring out of the US related to selling real estate was hitting the UK. And people were starting to ask why these real estate agents are driving around in Porsches and Lamborghinis and making so much money. And in the UK, everyone is sort of in this estate agency model that, that doesn't allow them to sort of break that glass, that glass ceiling. And so I knew that it was going to have an impact on our industry, which it has. Yeah, I and mean, I guess um, I guess in the UK, there's uh, there's an agency that I, I, I'm aware of called, uh, I think it's Tyrone, Tyrone Ash, where I think people sort of really make a big effort to to drive around in quite flash aggressive cars um which i, I do you do you look at the the culture of both the U, us and uk and you understand you see where m- actually in the u in the us that would be celebrated in the uk we've still got that tall poppy syndrome and they if you're if your estate agents turning up in anything more than a bmw one series um they're doing a little bit too well for themselves yeah look uh, this has gone around in my head for, for many, many years, because when people start to see me producing content, they thought it was an ego play. They didn't realize the business opportunity behind it. And they're very quick to judge and quite cynical here in the UK. Um, but, but the consideration as to why I should do what I'm doing and take a, take a leap um, was that culturally, the UK is quite an oppressive place. Like You need to stay where you are. Don't grow too fast. Don't push the boundaries which means that there's a lot of opportunity because a lot of people are staying where they are. So now we know there's opportunity beyond that, beyond the hurt, beyond the difficulties, there's opportunity. Secondly, um, culturally, I think we're more malleable than we've ever been before. And the reason why I say that is that with the internet, especially 2.0, we're all consuming the same content, right? So it's not segregated anymore where everyone's just watching BBC or Channel 4, which is keeping us in our places. We're now watching content from all over the world and how people are embracing selling stuff through digital channels and people's mindsets. And everyone's starting to learn that speaking uh, speaking um, uh, positively to yourself is so valuable and embracing other people, working collaboratively is so valuable and all that sort of stuff. We weren't necessarily a culture in the UK that was aware of that. Yeah, we were sort of hampered by this sort of glass ceiling. So this consideration of everyone's watching content online, we have to be present there and they'll be more used to receiving the content in a different way because they're watching it themselves. And gradually everything speeds up. And now I find myself as a as a kid who grew up in local authority housing until I was 11 um, and didn't know anything about wealth and have sort of studied my way to the top of the industry. like, you know, I've got a lot in common now with with Middle Eastern princes and sheikhs and tech entrepreneurs in the US and, and multifamily offices based out in Asia. I've got a lot in common with them because my age group in particular is the first age group to, to really use social channels to really, you know, see the Internet grow. And now we have a lot in common. 
whether you're a prince or a sheikh or an ultra high net worth in the US or a family office in Asia, we've all listened to hip hop music and R&B and Vincent Mykonos and um, we're the same Mike Dunks. And, you know, we've got so much in common nowadays that people aren't necessarily as segregated they once were, even though people do want us to be segregated. Yeah, no, um, that is very interesting, uh, very interesting to hear that. But just sticking with the theme of, of social media, I'm, I'm guessing you've had your account cloned and, and, and you're probably yeah. people try to hack your account all the time. How does it make you feel when, you know, when someone says, um, oh, I've just been followed by someone that's purporting to you? Like, first of all, yeah, how does it feel? And second of all, it is how easily is it dealt with? Because I get the impression that because I. I I've reported a few clone accounts and on Instagram and, and Instagram goes basically Instagram doesn't do anything about it from what I can see. Um, I th- in the beginning, I didn't like it. I felt I felt um, that cheats were taking advantage um, of trust that I that I've built with my community. Um, but after a little while, I mean, I must have had maybe 50 fake accounts, if not more. Um, and I got a blue tick finally after after eight years or seven years of producing content. And now uh, there aren't as many accounts that I'm aware of. Um, but that's just part and parcel with, you know, social media now. I, I'm looking forward for, for, for everyone having to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Confirm their identity on social channels. Yeah. I think that'd be a really healthy thing. And that's where it's going because of blockchain and, you're going to need this sort of digital entry point, which will be through social channels, no doubt, or some sort of identification. You know, yeah. I think it's good to confirm who it is online. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the, the, the fake accounts are a bit of a scourge um, in, in general. And um, I, I also question what uh, what these people with these fake accounts are seeking to achieve as well. I mean, Why? I, I, they're trying to they're trying to um, to extort cash. The, uh, uh, although I'm yet to be offered uh, uh, any crypto scams by the fake accounts that I've. Uh, ah, well, it'll take time. But, you know, there's crypto, there's, there's, you know. You get people now building relationships online and then will you transfer me some money and so on and so on. Like God knows what they're up to. It's just it's another another form of crime. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, now you're a verified account, you're probably are, are you quite selective about, you know, which DMs you open and you have to be, you know, to be a bit more careful than you were. I'm getting DM'd every day. So um, it's tricky who you respond to. It's, it's tricky who you respond to because, you know, you really want I really want to respond with everybody. But. You know, if someone DMs you and says, hey, have you got 10 minutes for a call? Well, if I if I if I agree to every 10 minutes with a call, I'll never have time to to do business. You know. Tricky. On 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 that note, um, how do you strike the balance between, you know, I suppose planting the seeds and then harvesting? You know, you, you can't be for like you said, you can't be forever planting seeds. At some point, you've got to harvest. How, what's what's your approach approach there in trying to monetize the efforts that you, you put into to building relationships? So I don't um, I don't try and execute business over social channels. Social channels for me is to build brand. Yeah. And building building brand is is about its value that's attributed to you and your company that you don't realize when you're not around. Um, so 
that's tricky. I'm never trying to sell over social channels. I never ask for business. You know, that's that's not how I work. It's not how the business works. But what we can, what we do know, if you if you're wanting to know about, you know, creating interest or producing content, creating interest, and then executing business, you know, in three and a half years we sold now half a billion pounds worth of property and have about a billion pounds worth of property available for sale. So um, with an average transaction of around 18.2 million pounds. So we built this business from content marketing and my network and trust that I've got amongst my peers and clients. And, and now, of course, you're, build, you're building a business up. You've got, um, you know, you've got a, a good, a good trusted team around you. Um, by all accounts, you know, you, you appear to have very, uh, you know, a very dialed in team that you seem to trust pretty implicitly. Um, you know, what are the, you know, what are the key, you know, what do you think the key attributes are to building and developing um, a, a strong team? Um, I'm still learning that. I'm still learning through that process. I wouldn't say that I was an expert at it. Um, I do see talent. I recognize talent pretty quickly, which is handy. And now it's about um, sort of positioning them right and teaching them and uh, enabling them to be very successful and, and, and realizing that the, the industry has changed. Um, the nice thing about the business is that we've we've never actively approached anybody. Um, which means that people are following us and then they're interested by how we do business um and that we're sort of future thinking future leading and people are approaching us and then if we think that they're the right fit culturally for the business we will we will consider them if they've got a good track record or they understand social channels and they can present in on camera you know stuff like this is very important now if you looked at the job description 10 years ago or, or five years ago or even three years ago or even now actually you know businesses aren't saying how comfortable are you at presenting on camera but we are. I suppose that you know you, you as a business are set apart from I think the the vast majority of um, you know of of businesses in the real estate industry. Yeah. O obviously, you're not the only ones doing it. But um, I mean, I think of of all the industries, the real estate industry is possibly the most backwards when it comes to tech and social media. Yeah. You know, I I don't feel like I post very often on LinkedIn. Maybe once, twice, maybe maximum three times a week. Um, and and then I'll speak to someone and say, I'm always seeing your content. I'm always seeing your post on LinkedIn. And I think I don't post that. I don't post that often. I'm like, you know, I'm an amateur at, at so, social media compared to, you know, compared to someone like yourself, Daniel. Um, and I and I think that there's unquestionably a very, you know, we, we are, you know, in the real estate industry as a whole, we are Luddites and we have a long, long way to go yeah, to really capture that. I, I agree with you, but you know you can either sort of fall in line and just expect other people to go and and create create entrepreneurial opportunity, or you can go and action it yourself. You know now that your posts are hitting potential customers. Well, if you were putting that into your business model, you would say, well, if I post more, I'll get more opportunities, so I need to post more. But the thing is, is that it's not natural for you and I. We didn't grow up with it necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the next generation, they post all day long, every day, and they realize how important it is. Yeah. So yeah. we we what people haven't seen yet, because we haven't talked about it, and we will do, is the technology that we built behind the scenes. Yeah. 
to enable our clients to have more insight as to how we're marketing their property, what engagement we're getting, real-time data for analysis to make sure we're getting things right. Yeah, we can sell the property faster and know that the decisions that we make are done so from a data perspective rather than an opinion from a person in a suit in an office. Mm. Yeah, those days are evaporating. So everything that we do is digitized, which means we've got really great reporting mechanisms and we will be the most um, efficient and most knowledgeable. We are probably the most knowledgeable digital marketing real estate business you will find anywhere. It's a big statement, but if you saw what we built in the background, it's pretty special. Well, I've no doubt. I've no doubt that you'll be able, you can back that up. I, mean, I, I guess. I, I guess the question I would ask is that your, or, or and maybe it's not a question, but question and a statement is your marketing property. I mean, if you're selling a hundred million pound property, for example, a hundred million dollar property, the pool of buyers for that for that property is incredibly shallow. So you need to you need to be able to track essentially track how you've how you're going out and, and, and marketing that how, how do you how do you ensure maximum reach and how, you know it's like what what me- what gets measured gets gets done is 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 it is, is, is essentially the, so the question is is that application of data is entirely essential to be able to access this incredibly thin pool of buyers that exists worldwide um yes it will be yeah people are still in this mindset that they want to meet the buyer this ultra high net worth directly okay i'll give you an interesting stat somewhere in the region of 80 percent of transactions over 10 million pounds in london are done through third party introducers and, and, so and go, go on sorry go on now. which means that if you're going to offer the best service to your client who's selling their property you have to work in collaboration with all these third party introducers. They may be estate agents in the UK, they may be brokers in the US, they may be third parties, i.e. lawyers, accountants, all over the world, because they have access to the ultra high net worth. Now, when a company is interested in selling a property, the issue about the estate, what the estate agents have, is that they're constantly trying to build brand. And building brand for them is, we introduce the buyer directly, so we have a greater market share. But the customer who's selling the property doesn't care where the buyer comes from, right? So when you're selling a property and you do a pitch, uh, sorry, when you're a seller of a property and an agent comes into pitch, an agent says, yes, we have 20% of the market in this neighborhood. But they're actually telling you is they've only got 20% and they don't have 80% of the market. It means that your agent has to work in collaboration with all the other incumbents to get the total market coverage. And to do that, you have to work in collaboration, except the way we look at things is that we collaborate with people, not just here in the UK, but people all over the world using ADBSR. I, I guess it, is, is, you, is, is the establishment of, of ADVSR.ai, is that also, was some of the inspiration of that also looking at maybe the American model where you have uh, someone representing the buyer and the seller i mean uh, presumably that well, in a in a high end, in a high end market is, is is in a high end market you can see why that's entirely uh, beneficial well i would agree i'd agree with the i mean i've built the business so well, we've built the business so you know <laughs> i'm going to agree with you but um, at the top end of the market yes for sure because because the buyers are global but you'll find now that there's more global movement from communities than ever before. 
you know, because if there are more people building their businesses online and they become slightly nomadic or extremely nomadic, these people are looking for places to live all over the world. So you're not looking for the 3,000 ultra high net worths anymore. You're looking for the 20 million people that are looking to move globally somewhere in the world. Oh, that's that a lot. Opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That a lot of opportunity. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, you, um, you've been speaking out a little bit, uh, or I've seen certainly seen you been a bit more outspoken, uh, calling for increased regulation of the estate agency industry. Um, do you want to talk people through that, uh, your thoughts on that a little bit, and as to why you, you think that's necessary, like sort of like a, more of a, a licensing model, maybe a bit like the US? Yeah, it, it's super simple. I don't think. Um, I did a talk at Regents Uni recently, and I asked all the people there, there was about 90 people there, to stand up and say, please sit down if you've had a bad experience with an estate agent recently. And um, 82 people sat down. So we have to recognise that the industry, the way it works, the, the, the function of the industry now doesn't work for anybody. Customers do not enjoy their experience. Why not? Well, we have to ask ourselves that question. I think that we're too KPI'd, we're not relationship driven. And the way we've set up the business here doesn't really support the customer. And, and part of the reason for that is that um, agents are KPI. So make a thousand phone calls and send a thousand emails to do a hundred viewings to get 10 offers to do one deal. Like no one's benefiting from that except for the owner of the business. Nobody. Customer doesn't like it. Buyer doesn't like it. Seller won't like it. Um, uh, tenant won't like it because there isn't uh, there isn't anyone trying to bring everyone closer. It's just cover as much ground as possible. So there's that. That's that's one of the points. The other point is that the agents are so concerned about what other agents are doing because there's no structure around um, around sort of ownership of the appointment that they're so concerned about what other agents are doing that they don't focus on the customer and the client, right? So for instance, we'll get appointed to sell a property. As soon as we get appointed to sell a property, we have 15 agents in the neighborhood trying to reach out to our client. Now what happens now is that we have to fend off those 15 agents, which takes a portion of our time, which means we deliver a weaker service to our client. Now in the US, for instance, if you sign a mandate with a broker, that mandate is hardcore. If an agent is seen trying to stimulate business interest with that seller, and it's, there's, there's confidence, their license can be revoked. Now, what that means is that an agent's got a clear path to sell the property. They can invest time and money in selling the property or leasing that property. It means that all the anxiety is created around fending off other people that are just trying to sell their service yeah, evaporates and you can focus at the golden hand. And I think that that is unbelievably important if we want to deliver a great service. Yeah, absolutely. OK, well, I think that's uh, there's some some interesting food for thought there. And um, yeah, I guess that that's something that um, we'll see how that plays out over time. But it, it does look like that's becoming an increasing reality. Um, uh, what what, what I'm sort of seeing here, though, is that very much a mantra of um, I, I've always had a, uh, the quote from Zig Ziglar that sort of stuck with me, which is you can have everything you like, but everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. And I think and, yeah. and 
and the and the reason and the reason I'm that's re- what you're saying is really resonating with me is that I I think what you're sort of advocating for look we're we're representing the seller here um but I want to work collaboratively with all these other agents who've got buyers for this particular bit of kit and you're actually your number one outcome your number one priority is the outcome for the client the outcome for the seller if if yeah. you're mandated to sell it's you know it's prioritizing them and if that means you have to take a little bit less on an individual deal because you've got to share that with someone else then ultimately that's something that's worth doing because your reputation will only be furthered as a consequence of that and you'll end up getting more sales and more mandates in the future so um you know i'm i, I think that's something that i'm finding um you know re- really interesting and, and hopefully our listeners uh, uh, appreciate that as well have, have, i can i can say i have experience right i'm a kid that my network wasn't particularly strong so the only success that i had was in delivering a greater service or saving people time all right now i could do that because i had a lot of time on my hands yeah i was a young man who didn't have a family and kids and so whilst all the other agents were sort of KPI'd out, you know, you have to do all this, you have to do all that. I was just focused on trying to save, recognize what the issue was and try and rescue that situation, right? So my job is to say, hey, don't worry, I'll handle it for you because everyone wants to hear that, everybody. And if I can do that with enough people, whether they have a lot of influence or a little bit of influence, they'll end up speaking to other people and your brand will grow. That's how I built my business. You do a lot of good things for other people, whether it be other professionals or clients, they'll talk about you in a positive light and then they'll do more business. At a certain point, you'll become a threat to a lot of people and then they'll talk shit about you, right? But the ultra high net worth and the, and the, and the people that are phenomenally successful recognize that because that's happened to them too. So that's yeah. just an element of growth. That's just what happens. But in, in our, our world where there's total democratization of information, um and access people are going to choose to do business with people that they like trust and respect and that they often find on social channels or have been referred to the days of dealing with strangers are, are evaporating rapidly so your job is to build brand and do the best thing for your client and customer yeah it's it's almost like when you have because of the power of social media because you've you're able to project yourself onto the world when you have that first conversation with someone um and and actually this is the first time we've spoken even though we've interacted a lot online i already feel like i know a, a good amount about you having followed you for many years uh, online and, and and i think vice versa too um and so i think it, you you're never really it's never really a cold call is it it's never the no. the, the, the door is almost always slightly ajar when you have that conversation if you if you're able to project yourself enough um yeah. outwardly onto the world Everything's about referrals. Everything is about creating a digital footprint, producing content online, getting engaged audience, whether or not they're customers or not customers, it doesn't really matter. Because those people will say, Michael will say today at lunch, just had a great chat with Daniel Daggers. It's interesting you said this, on and so on. The person you go to lunch will go, who's this guy? You'll explain and hopefully there'll be a referral from it. And that's how life works. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So being one one interesting point when i left my previous business um there were some people in the industry that were talking about oh don't produce content online you have to be super private and so on and so on and they were producing content online about me doing what i do 
right? And I thought to myself, well, this is a little bit like ambulance chasing. You know, this isn't the right thing to do. So everyone has the ability to produce content online. What you want to do is you want to speak to the people that know exactly what they're doing and how to navigate that. But everything is going to boil down to personal recommendation, personal brand, um, because that's the only thing that we will have, especially when we plug AI into all this data. I mean, what I find strange is someone would devote serious energy and effort into tearing down effectively tearing down the the things that you're doing i mean i i i i think as i guess like-minded individuals we want to devote our time and energy into things that are positive not necessarily into into things that things that are negative um on i guess on a sim i guess on a similar you know a similar theme you know what are the you know what is the biggest challenge that you experience as a as a business owner and business leader you know and you know if we, if if we haven't already spoken about it uh i think the most the hardest thing has become the easiest thing and the most difficult thing um sorry and the easiest thing has been the hardest so what i mean by that is generally access to the customer and advertising was notoriously difficult because you needed either a lot of influence or a lot of money to get your name in the press in the news, in the papers, on TV, you have to spend a huge amount of money for an office. Actually, nowadays, you could produce content online, advertise the product, advertise the service, and people will actually find you. Okay, so that was notoriously difficult. That's become a lot easier. Okay, and you can learn about it, courses that we've done, other people have done. You can learn about producing content online, and you will meet customers. The thing that was most difficult and is most difficult is the setup of a business here in the UK is ridiculously difficult for no reason. Um, during COVID, we set the business up and just getting a bank account was absolutely a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And just the structure of setting a business up was very difficult. Now, that might be because I've never done it before. And that might be because we're doing new things in a structured environment. And so we've never done it before. And that makes life difficult for us to find the solution in the most accurate way possible. Um, that's the sort of juxtaposition of what I thought was going to be easy and what was difficult and vice versa. The other thing is people. You know, people are wonderful human beings. I love people. People supported me throughout my whole life. But sometimes people are very difficult. You know? And um, you have to recognize what your strengths are. You have to be very self-aware for you to grow, let's put it that way. And when you're around a group of people that really want to support you, it's the best place to be. But you have to be prepared to be supported. And that's, that's something that um, my heritage taught me because when you're a kid that comes from very little, you don't have very much to lean back on. Right. So the only way that you're going to get better and improve is if you really embrace what people are telling you. Because there's no other way for you. Yeah. And, and I think that anyone who's got this sort of entrepreneurial mindset has to be absolutely prepared to listen to the people around them. And rather than make a decision or a snap decision or, or have a really firm response, they need to be open to everything. And gradually in time, they'll focus on what actually they need to do and how they want to do it. I love that. I, love that. I, think, I think it's entirely right, because I think where you can go wrong is you you can have the 
you, you have a fixed approach, fixed mindset and think that there's in, and, and be a bit too self-reliant. But but ultimately, entrepreneurship, even if you're a, a sole, sole practitioner entrepreneur, it's, it's a team sport. You know, you you can't achieve anything without without the help no. of other people. Um, so I think it's really useful and really helpful thing to to share with people. And um, what what do the next eighteen months look like for DDRE and ADVSR? Growth, um, growth. We've got an interesting moment coming up, uh, which will be which which will be sort of um, a nice jetpack to support us for the exposure. But um, excluding that, it's about growth. It's about finding more talent. Um, enticing more talent, uh, selling more real estate, narrowing down the, the technological um, sort of work that we've we've been we've been working on in the background, and getting a little bit more narrow with everything. Because what you do is you put out the feelers, and then you gradually find yourself, and then you find yourself, and then you get very narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow, and then you know the exact um, most efficient path. So I think a lot of it is about growth, talent. Um, um, narrowing our vision when it comes to the tech that we built and uh, and going to make a difference. You know, the people in this business here at uh, DDRE uh, Global and ADVSR, they're not just interested in being a state agent. You know, they want to have a meaningful impact on our industry and therefore the world. And I think that that is a great place to be because I would love to have had that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what the next 18 months looks like. How do you how do you create alignment with um, with the people that work for you? You know, as you you know, how do you how do you try to maintain standards and and have people care, if not as much as you and nearly as much as you um, about the work that they're doing? You can't expect people to care as much as you. You just no. can't. Um, but how how do you how do you how do you how do you find how do you get people well, to be a, a lot a, a bought into the vision and and what you well, and what you're trying to achieve? It's practice and results. So what you do is you say, look, here's our vision, and this is what we think the world looks like, and this is why we're doing what we're doing. When we produce content around that, we naturally get people come to us and say, hey, we're really interested in what you're doing. We'd love to try and help you or be part of that business, and then we're looking for sort of not product market fit, but person market fit. And then when they come in, we do a real deep dive when we have these conversations about why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it and what the results are. And then when they're the right fit, they come into the business and they go and they become a practitioner. Because what I found is that there's a lot of people that uh, talk the talk, but very few walk the walk. Okay. And so here, all our um, agents or advisors they're independent practitioners. They run their own businesses and they have splits here. And essentially, they're all our partners. So we want everyone to succeed. And when one person finds a nice solution to something or whether it be content driven, everyone benefits from that. And again, it just gets narrower and narrower and narrower because we know what wins and what actually makes sense. And people are buying into it because they know from other people's data points that this is the right way to work. And we're successful at it. So um, we're leading the charge. And that's how we're meeting talent, retaining talent, and um, and engaging talent. And in terms of the model, is it you? You mentioned obviously everyone is independent practitioners. So yeah. have you have you now got so 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 effectively very few people directly employed, um, essentially having so you're providing a, essentially a sort of an umbrella 
an umbrella organization that people sit sit within um and so, and people leverage off that so i would say to you traditionally it would be an umbrella so you would say look the corporate business sits on top and you're beneath it here we don't believe that we think access to the customers through people people are the most important thing so what they do is they sit at the top and they plug into the business because the business is a platform and ddre global essentially is a media marketing and technology business that enables professionals to deliver a great service so we have an, an amazing crm which does things that no other crm does in the uk we have um democratization of content we do that in a very particular way that gets more engagement and builds brand for the individuals and the organization um and then we have more technology to support them globally um this is the best way to tackle business now um we believe people are the most important thing and um they're all partners essentially um and excluding uh, and excluding third parties through advsr um yeah how many countries are you currently have you got agents currently active in um you know under the ddre banner zero okay zero. so we're doing business all over the world um and we're using essentially ambassadors of our brand people that we know like and respect over the years that we've built a good reputational rapport with and they go and execute business with us because we think that every real estate agent is global especially if you're using digital channels and your shop i.e ddre global's website is a global website and you'll find that estate agents websites are going to become more and more and more important and create more influence around their brand rather than finding properties on right move and super well um definitely uh, definitely a novel approach and uh, one that seems to be paying dividends for you um you're you're a very busy man um how many hours a day do you typically work and i think i'm guessing you also work weekends as well what 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 is it what does a typical working week look like for you uh, when i when i have to work i'm working <laughs> <laughs> but like you know if if i have clients who are trying to buy real estate globally i have to be available at different times of the day yeah if i if i don't want to be they'll do business with someone else but if they trust me and like me and respect me, they'll choose to do business with me and I have to make myself available. You know, this element of sacrifice. But thankfully, I love what I do. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, that, ultimately, there's not really uh, there's I'm, I'm guessing you don't really believe in work life balance so much. It's, you know, you're passionate about well, you what you do. And that's what you tell me what you tell me what work life balance is, because it's going to be very different to what I think work life balance is, which is going to be really different to what Sarah thinks work life mm. balance is. There is no such thing as work-life balance. There is do what you want to do if you enjoy it. I mean, I, it's something I subscribe to in the sense of I think that if you want to grow a business, if you want to be successful, you, you can't have balance. Um, you know, we sat at Bavermore when my youngest son was, I don't know, six months old. Um, and and I didn't see my kids very much, you know, for, for most of the working week. And I'd be spending Sunday afternoons doing the accounting. You know, I think ultimately work-life balance isn't, isn't a thing if you want to uh, grow a successful business or you want to be the best at something. Um, that's my personal view. Um, but yeah. at the same time, you the, uh, and, and I guess the, the, the follow-up question, though, is that you, you do need to have a, an outlet, in my opinion, um, to to help with the stress. Um, what 
what is your outlet you know what what do you do to help you manage that um you know those those clearly very intense working weeks i love avengers movies love them we, we can see the iron Mar uh, iron man mask in in in, in 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 the background which uh, which looks very cool um so i love i love avengers movies i used to play computer games till about eight years ago and i think if if i had the gumption to set it up again i'd probably be an avid gamer um call of duty was my was my um was my particular choice um i play a lot of football though this season i haven't because it just had too much going on which people understand in a few months time and um i watch a lot of football i go to the arsenal i've got tickets there i love it i take my dad when he's in town or guests or friends or girlfriends whatever it may be um so that's always wonderful and that's generally how and sometimes i go to the gym i go through phases of it um which isn't great but that's how that's how i tend to deal with mm. it yeah that's how i tend to deal with it all do you have a are you, are you quite careful with your diet as well do you um you know i'm becoming more careful becoming more careful with my diet yeah, yeah. um i've been intermittent fasting for probably four years now um which which definitely helps and there's certain foods that that, that give me a lot of energy and certain foods that don't and sap energy um but from like a lifestyle perspective all my friends know me as an extremely hard worker yeah um, and, and my colleagues and i don't mind that i, I enjoy I, what i do like what why you know i'd rather they said that than like he's a he's an extreme gamer right and my clients are wanting me to help them buy and sell some of the most expensive property all over the world i don't think they'd be they'd be entirely happy that i'm like a gamer for eight hours of the day no but, uh, they'll they have some image of some uh, some spotty spotty sort of uh, spotty teenager in a hoodie uh, probably isn't isn't sending the message you want it to I, I think actually the I, I I think you don't take very many holidays do you like I mean you travel a lot for work but I but I don't seem to see don't seem to see too many uh, hol holiday pics on you I can't sit on the beach I can't sit there for for five hours of the day and just watch people on the beach I just can't do that I'm not built that way it's not it's not it's okay to be okay not being on the beach for eight hours of the day or six hours a day. It, that's okay yeah um I, I mean I am I am I right in thinking you went on you went on a holiday and I you I think I'm sure I saw you posting about it. you went on a holiday and and I think I don't, either you came back early or you were kind of not you know you, you basically weren't enjoying it very much and you ended up just going back going back to work pretty pretty quickly after yeah i just look i honestly i think that um for 25 years now i've been working at a certain pace and my body is used to it my body is brain is you and you use my body and brain are used to working at this tempo and it's a bit like asking me to sit in a chair for three hours to go through numbers. I find that really difficult because my body doesn't allow me to do that. I've been out running around looking at properties my whole life and I enjoy it. And I also find that I learn more, which makes me more powerful, which makes me more influential when I'm spending time with other people looking at real estate and meeting interesting people. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't I want to choose to do that and sit on a beach for eight hours of the day, which makes me feel uncomfortable? Now, give me an hour's walk at sunrise 
or an hour's walk at sunset or two hours during the day um, on the beach, then great, I'll take that all day long. But do I need to sit there for six or seven hours? No, I don't. I don't need to do that. Do, uh, does your uh, does your work ethic and does your does your lifestyle make um, personal relationships a bit more challenging? Um, sure, hundred percent, hundred percent. Of course it does, um, and and it's definitely had an impact on my relationships. But if the relationships were meant to be, then my spouse would would either be more sympathetic or recognise that this is something that's unbelievably meaningful to me uh, and I enjoy it and it's not just the job I really feel that this business is going to evolutionize our industry and it's much greater than me much bigger than me um, and you want someone who's sympathetic to that so yeah it definitely has had an impact. I, I think I actually have a lot of sympathy for, for your perspective there because you know in, in your case this is very much you know, you feel like it's a vocation, it's a calling. And, you know, for someone to expect you to change who you are would be unfair. It's not it's not realistic, you know, to expect you to change, you know, like you said, the last 20, you know, 25 years of formation. And then, you know, and, and then, you know, the, the years leading up to that as well. You know, you are who you are. And it's probably a bit unfair of someone to expect that to to expect you to change just to suit their needs. Well, so. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm 43. I'm not a 20 something year old. Right. So people, you know, when I've been dating, people have been attracted to the person that I am. And a big part of my life is my professional life. Um, and so they they like me for those reasons. And to expect to like me for those reasons, but not for me to continue doing something that I love would be, I don't know, very difficult, very, very yeah. difficult um for sure um i i guess as just as a sort of winding up now um are there any are there any new ideas that you've got coming up and you know beyond ddre and advsr you know you, or, or is, is the priority to, to get them to to focus on them um i i don't believe in thinking in the current i i i really like to stay in the future and constantly be challenged and recognize where we are next and that might be because it's out of um nervousness that at some point the business will die or um just insecurities around me growing up you know i i always want to be in the future so i'm prepared as well prepared as i can be to try and see what that looks like to place the business in the right place to benefit greater than than others other businesses so i have an eye on the concept of um double clicking and buying real estate using people as the most influential tool to buy real estate i think that will retain its value i'm definitely interested in pursuing ai and incorporating that in the business we're doing that at the moment we've got a developer that works in house um so we're doing things that no one's ever done before because I think there's an opportunity to do things that no one's ever done before. Um, you just need to be brave and have enough money <laughs> to do, do that. Do you ever see yourself slowing down? I think that when I have children and I'm and I love kids, uh, I think that when I have children, I will have to have a very, very, very hard and long look at myself. Um, and say, okay, right, you know, 
now now's the time I need re I really need to think about the, the apportionment of time that I'm going to give my family. Um, my dad was incredible when it came to effort for me. He went to the local park with me every night or across the road on the green and kicked the ball around with me for an hour when he was in his you know, late 40s, early 50s. And it created an amazing bond. Now, I want to do that with my kids. And I can't do that if I'm out till 8 p.m. every night. Yeah. So um, until that moment arrives, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and do it well. Well, um, good, good words there. Um, last, last question. Um, sure. Obviously, as, as, as a kind of the a boy done good, um, to the, you know, if, if there's a 17 year old listening who's, you know, who's maybe got like you got dyslexia and is maybe not doing so well academically and isn't sure what they're going to do with their lives, but they know inherently that they want to be successful in business. What, you know, what, what would you say to them right now? What, what advice would you give to them? If they don't know what they're good at and they don't know what to do, I would tell them to do loads of different things and see what they're either really good at or uh, what they really enjoy. Um, I don't think there'll be a place in this world to really be particularly average at anything, especially when AI takes sort of a grip of all industries. I think you want to be brilliant at something um, and it doesn't matter what that is, whether it's carpentry or, or a state agency, it doesn't really matter for finance. Um, I would try loads of different things and then when you find something you really like to do don't be ashamed by it just don't be ashamed by it absolutely embrace it and when you find that thing that you like doing find the best person at it and if you can go and work with them convince them do anything you possibly can to convince them to take you on and do everything for them learn how to be unbelievably customer centric in that instance the customer that you're working for is the person that you're working for because you want to learn everything about their daily routine, how they speak to people, when it's tough, when it's easy, you want to learn everything. And you want to clamp on to them and suck them full of information and become unbelievably knowledgeable. And if you gain their trust, they'll, imp they'll implement you into their ecosystem and you'll be able to grow your business. But by doing so, they have to build a digital footprint. They have to create content around what they like and it is not a um, a requirement. It is not a need. It is not a maybe. It is um, an essential part of anyone's role, because AI is going to take the most mundane parts of all our jobs and make it a lot easier. But what it won't be able to do is create um, bonds with people. And nowadays, you don't create bonds with people just in person. You do it over digital channels. So if you become totally reliant on your desk and you disengage people, you run the risk of losing your role to AI or carrying less influence because AI will take a lot of it. That's what I would suggest people do. Well, I think that's a fantastic suggestion and one that I wholeheartedly support. Um, Daniel Daggers, where can people find you if they aren't already following you, which they probably are? um how, how how do people how do our how do our listeners reach out to you you type in daniel underscore daggers into instagram 
um, or into LinkedIn or into Twitter, onto TikTok, wherever it may be, you will find me and, uh, and please follow and hopefully I'll be sharing more interesting news ahead of time so you can um, be ahead of the curve. Awesome. Well, um, you heard it there, Daniel. Um, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Um, very much appreciate you, and uh, well, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Michael. Very kind. Appreciate the opportunity. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.